Health Director General Tansi Dr. Noor Hisham Abdullah said social factors that cause excessive stress, such as losing a job or source of income, and to be isolated from family and friends can affect some individuals with high risk of mental problems and depression. So, Doc, I suppose the first um, question would be, how do we eliminate the stigma associated with suicidal behavior? Well, uh, it's good that you actually brought this up because actually International Suicide Prevention Day uh, was just celebrated a few days ago on the 10th of September. It's a month of celebrating it as well, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yep. So the activities that are going on to actually discuss and talk about uh, preventing suicide. Um, and I was also happy to be part of a youth initiative of the National Coalition for Mental Wellbeing, focusing on debunking myths uh, surrounding stigma associated with suicide. So actually, stigma towards suicide is a major issue in Malaysia. It's almost taboo to even talk about in, you know, general forums or talks or any other media. Mm. Um, And this stigma only serves to make it hard for those harboring suicide thoughts or plans to actually seek help or approach others around them. And that archaic laws that criminalize suicide add Mm. to the stigma and taboo. And they definitely increase the obstacles to effective treatment. I was actually going to ask you about that because they're considering fighting against that law right now, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've been doing that for years. I just wish somebody would take it to the next level. I don't believe that suicide should be accepted or condoned, but its prevalence and seriousness should be acknowledged. Mm. You know? And by talking about it does not mean we encourage it or we condone it. The more information and resources we have regarding suicide mm. and the more openly we talk about it, actually the better because these supportive conversations can actually make people who are suicidal think about looking for help. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, I think uh, we should open ourselves to actually take this, you know, head on and, and start making it more accessible for people. Absolutely. I mean, talking about that, you know, if people are too scared to talk about it, aren't talking about it, how can mm. we identify the early symptoms of depression and suicide behavior amongst our loved ones? Well, I think the most important thing is to know that suicide is preventable. And by learning to understand the risk factors and warning signs, we can actually be part of that whole process of, you know, preventing people from getting into suicide. Some of the common warning signs are, you know, people becoming more sad or moody because depression is a major risk factor for suicide. Hmm. Um, They may start to withdraw from others or lose interest in activities that they used to enjoy. There can be changes in personality, the appearance, or even sleep patterns, or they may exhibit dangerous self-harmful behavior like driving dangerously or, you know, increased use of drugs or alcohol. Mm-hmm. And they may also have recent trauma or life crisis. But every threat of suicide should basically be taken seriously. And if, if a family or friend talks about suicide, I think the important thing is to take them seriously, uh, listen without judgment, and encourage them to seek professional help. So getting vaccinated not only protects you against COVID-19, but it seems it can also improve your mental well-being. A large-scale study published this week by the Public Library of Science showed that overall mental health scores of participants participants improved after receiving a single COVID-19 vaccine dose. So Doc, how is this vaccination process related to boosting people's mental health? Is it a placebo thing? Yeah, I was just wondering about that. <laughs> Maybe they've got an antidepressant in it. <laughs> <laughs> you never be right. Yeah, they're just talking about that. Yeah. I didn't get that one then. You didn't get that one. No, quite the opposite. But yeah, this study looked at uh, 8,003 adults in the US and found that those who were vaccinated reported decreased mental distress levels and uh, they were less likely to exhibit mild or 
severe depression. But the thing is, I mean, the pandemic has affected us in many different aspects. You know, the lockdown, social distancing, job problems, pay cuts, and you know, the fear of being infected. All of this definitely can affect our mental health. Mm. And so the survey suggests that getting the first dose of the vaccine actually improved these parts of you know the effects that were in relation to mental health. They can't really pinpoint why the, those who got the shot experienced this boost. Mm-hmm. But they said it's a combination of factors that maybe mm-hmm. they're less worried about getting infected. They may become more active socially, more may venture back to workplaces and mm. interact with colleagues. And that sense of hope, um, although the new norm is required to be practiced, mm. is you know sort of instilled. Mm. You know, I think I personally felt a change in distress and hope after receiving my first shot because I oh, could see, okay. you know, I could see that light at the end of the tunnel thing. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And also, is it partly because also you're so stressed out? Like, like Asha here was very stressed out about uh, the side effects of it. And then you get it and then you get yeah. sick. And then after that, you feel you feel fine. And then like, hey, yeah. I, I overcame something. No, you're right. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the fear that comes along with, oh, what's this vaccine going to do? And then yeah. get through that, that whole yeah. process. And you think, well, it wasn't that bad. You yeah. Know? So, yeah, I, I think all of that also has this, uh, you know, sort of easing of our own emotions and yeah. feelings as well. So how could this help, do you think, with people who are hesitant with taking the vaccine? Well, I think those who are hesitant uh, perhaps already think that they're immune to the virus. So, mm-hmm. you know, their sense of hope is, may not be diminished significantly. Right. But as more things open up and mm. with, because of the vaccine rollout, they also enjoy some of those benefits like inter-district travel, mm-hmm. work and social opportunities. Yeah. Um, of course, there may be this vaccine pass- passport for some things. Yeah. Uh, but they also may be comforted that, you know, the risk that it poses to their immediate family and friends who may have higher risk issues is less because mm. they've been vaccinated, you know. Eczema doesn't just irritate kids' skin. This often disfiguring condition may also be tied to depression, anxiety and sleep difficulties, according to new research. How is this disease tied to depression and anxiety, Doc? Well, eczema is an itchy red skin disease. And this study of more than 11,000 British children and teens found that those with severe eczema were twice as likely to become clinically depressed. And eczema, of course, typically is episodic, flaring up and then remitting. But sometimes these cycles can be chronic. And so those with severe eczema seem to have actually higher rates of depression and anxiety. So it's suggested there's a bi-directional relationship between eczema and mental disorders, uh, because it's been shown that anxiety and stress can actually trigger the body into a fight. Mm. Yeah, into a fight or flight mode. And this leads to increased stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol. And eventually too much cortisol suppresses the immune system. And that then leads to that inflammatory response in the skin. So people who are already living with skin diseases like eczema are especially susceptible to this inflammatory response. So, you know, it gets triggered by stress and anxiety. Mm. So it's like a vicious cycle. They're stressed out because of their eczema, but then the eczema... uh, is caused also by them being overly stressed as well. So this goes round and round and round. Exactly. Because the disfigurement and the skin irritation can trigger depression Mm. and anxiety. So too can, you know, the irritation that affects sleep then trigger off depression and anxiety as well. So it's it's a vicious cycle. What can parents do then to help their child treat the disease and the mental health at the same time? Well, I think the first step is for them to know that eczema is very closely linked to the mind. 
mm. and not to you know minimize these uh, mental health symptoms that they may see in their children as well uh, because it's not just depression and anxiety it's also self esteem issues fear and then the you know subsequent uh, bullying and teasing and you know all of that that happens with their peer groups yeah. um you know they need to not stick to age old beliefs that kids are and teens are mentally resilient there's no such thing they learn and they build their resilience over the experiences and they need guidance in that whole process so i think it's important to focus not just on the skin problems but also on the mental health of you know children who are experiencing this uh strive to get the best care possible not only for the eczema but also for the you know emotional hardship that it may trigger and incorporate things like exercise breathing techniques mindfulness meditation all of which can actually be modeled by the parents themselves yeah and i think that will really help the teen and the kid to get over the eczema and to deal with their mental health as well. The disaster of 9/11 in New York City has had long-term impacts on both the responders and civilians according to Mark Farfel, director of the World Trade Center Health Registry, which has tracked the health of more than 70,000 people directly exposed to the attacks who voluntarily enrolled in the registry in 2003 and 2004. How do we battle or or, or deal with PTSD. Yeah, so post traumatic stress disorder is a type of anxiety disorder that typically happens after a catastrophic event. Uh even those who weren't directly involved can be impacted, for example, first responders and family members. So people with PTSD can have, you know, things like insomnia, flashbacks, low self-esteem and painful or unpleasant emotions. And they may constantly relive the event as well as, you know, then triggering more anxiety. Mm. Uh, so the, there are treatments for PTSD, and they focus mainly on three different things, which is one to improve the symptoms of PTSD, two to teach skills to deal with it, and also finally to restore your self-esteem. But it takes a biopsychosocial approach, you know, using mm. medications like. uh ssris uh and then therapy like cognitive behavior therapy and then social treatments like group work or family therapy uh emdr or eye movement desensitization and reprocessing that's another effective treatment where you actually relive the traumatic or triggering experiences in brief doses while the therapist you know sort of directs your eye movements Right. Um uh, it's helping to recall distressing events with less emotional response while your attention is you know sort of diverted basically. Right. But when it comes to 9/11 it's pretty hard to do that because every single year on TV and I'm not saying it's a wrong thing to do but I'm just saying because mm. they have the memorials and you you relive that the whole world Yeah. Mm. Relives 9/11 has been doing they've been doing that for 20 years right now. Yeah. Well, but but you see that's that's part of exposure therapy. So And then, that's a good thing. Well, it it needs to be, you know, sort of modulated so you need to do it together with your therapist. Uh they help you through the anxiety and all the flashbacks that it may trigger. Mm. Yeah. Uh but the more you get the exposure and you know get accustomed to it and then uh, find that you're able to move on, the better it is for oh, you. Oh, desensitizing in a way. Mm. Exactly. Is it possible to cure such a disorder? Yeah, actually people do get cured from PTSD uh, just like any other anxiety disorder, but you know there are also the chronic PTSD conditions. A big number actually do recover within a 6 month period 
after PTSD has been diagnosed with the appropriate treatments, but there are a small percentage that may actually go on to develop chronic PTSD, where sometimes just control may be the only thing that you can achieve. But some, after a long period of time, for some therapies, actually, they, they do actually bring recovery, you know, even after five or six years. The situation in Gaza is unbearable. It's been described as an open-air prison, and the situation has become even worse amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Years of conflict in the blockade have left 80% of the population dependent on humanitarian assistance to survive. Doc, what are the mental health concerns of someone being stuck in an open-air prison, so to speak? Yeah, so as you said, the Gaza Strip is one of the most densely populated places actually on Earth. Uh, It has a population of approximately 2.1 million. And since 2007, it's actually been under a land, sea, and air blockade. Um, That's why it's actually referred to as the open-air prison. Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, has actually been providing mental health support to the people of Gaza. They actually identified numerous challenges among the people, including fear and anxiety over their lives due to, you know, random airstrikes that even occurred middle of the night. Mm. Uh, and of course, poverty, lack of food, drinking water and other essentials, and definitely healthcare services as well. But they report that young Gazans suffer from mood disorders, PTSD and other stress-related conditions at extremely high rates. The number of suicides and attempted suicides have also been on the rise in 2020, but they've largely been underreported because of the stigma around mental health issues in the Palestinian society. Mm. I mean, how does one begin to even try and provide any mental health care because these people are actually facing very real things. You know, you Mm. think about our fears and anxieties are sort of more what ifs, and yet these are very real, right? So, you know, what would be the best outcome that would aid their mental health in being helped? Yeah. So, I mean, essentially, if they can have access to holistic and comprehensive healthcare, which incorporates mental health services, I think that'd be ideal. Accessibility to specialists, medication, therapy, inpatient treatment. All this has to go hand in hand together with maybe better mental health literacy uh, and decreasing stigma and taboo or prejudice against mental health. And there should be a focus on building mental health resilience among the young and the population in general. Apparently, almost 40% of the population is below 14 years of age. They need a lot of help to deal with all the scars and trauma that they have thus experienced for sure. You know, for most other countries, COVID-19 is, you know, current the primary public and mental health concern in Palestine, it's almost like an afterthought, you know, because there's so much more dangerous things like air attacks and oppression. Mm -hmm. Uh, But still, you know, there's about 110,000 who have been infected by the virus with more than 1,000 deaths. And there's only doses of vaccine enough for 60,000 people. So, you know, it's Mm. the pandemic anxiety is also another mental burden that's affecting this population. 